This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Let's begin tonight's entertainment with a visit from Sherlock Holmes and his trusted companion, Dr. Watson. Arthur Conan Doyle began writing while studying medicine at university in the late 1870s and had his first short story published September of 1879. After eight years, A Study in Scarlet, Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes story, was published. The novel was well-received, but Doyle was paid little for it. He shifted his focus to short stories, and in early 1891, the first editor of the Strand magazine, Herbert Greenhouse Smith, received two submissions from Doyle for the newly established magazine. He later described his reaction. I at once realized that here was the greatest short story writer since Edgar Allan Poe. The initial print run of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes on October 14th of 1892 was 10,000 copies in the United Kingdom and a further 4,500 copies in the U.S. So, let's join Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the story of the Baconian Caper. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. Well, I'm sure Dr. Watson's ready for us. Let's go in and join him, shall we? Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. Quiet with it. Quiet with you. Dogs seem very pleased with themselves tonight. Did they have a good day? Yes, the three of us did, my boy. Hey, go on. I don't, I don't part in the patio. I took a seven iron and some old golf balls on the beach this afternoon. I improved my game, I think, and the dogs had a great time chasing the golf balls. On the way home, the little rascals had a furious battle with an elderly pelican. <laughs> so their day was complete. I'll have to join you on one of your afternoon strolls, Doctor. You and the dogs seem to have so much fun. Oh, I'll be glad of your company, Mr. Bartell. Well, draw up your usual chair and I'll get on with tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure. From the hint you gave us last week, I guess a Frenchman played a prominent part in the story? Yes, indeed he did, Mr. Bartell. His name was Francois Lavia. And he was a detective of some note in his own country. The time my story begins, it was in 1889, to be exact. Lavia had come over to London to discuss with Holmes the difficulties of translating some of his monographs into the French language. At this particular time, I was in the early days of my marriage, Mr. Bartell, and this fact, combined with a busy practice, 
meant that I saw very little of my old friend. He must have missed you, Doctor. Oh, uh, he did. Uh, well, uh, of course, he never admit the fact, but, uh, but uh, to get on with my story. One cloudless June afternoon, I found myself in the neighborhood of Baker Street, and I couldn't resist paying a visit to Holmes. Mrs. Hudson was out, but uh, having retained my old latchkey, I let myself in and mounted the familiar stairs. It gave me a strange feeling as I raised my hand to knock on what once had been my own living room door. Come in, come in. Oh, hello, Holmes. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I didn't know you were... Watson, my dear fellow. How very nice to see you again. <laughs> it's great to see you, Holmes. I... I'm sorry I interrupted you. I, no. I didn't know that you had company. Not at all, my dear fellow. We're delighted, aren't we, Le Villard? Hey, what we? this is, uh, Monsieur Le Villard. Well, how do you do, sir? How do you do? Enchanté, monsieur. I have often wished to meet the so charming Dr. Watson. Holmes has told me a great deal about you. Oh, it's nice of you, sir. Ah, that suits you, Watson. You look splendid, old fellow. Gained a little weight, haven't you? Oh, uh, yes. A few pounds, I mean. Here comes you. Sit down, won't you? Uh, you sure that I'm not interrupting you in some important discussion? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 mon cher docteur. We were having a good-natured argument on the relative abilities of the French criminal compared to the English. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you must lend me your support, idea. Watson. Monsieur Le Villa is convinced that the English criminal is a very dull dog indeed. Well, we've met some far from dull ones in our time, I... I assure you, Monsieur Le Villard. Ah, the exceptions rather than the rule, I fear, mon cher docteur. <laughs> You're stubborn, aren't you, Le Villard? <laughs> Believe me, my dear friend, that I will yield to no one in my admiration of your knowledge and skill. That is why I wish I could persuade you to practice in Paris. Ah, there you would find opponents really worthy of your skill. What can happen to interest you in this land of grey fogs, uh, boiled potatoes and uh, pots of tea? Excuse me for myself, sir. You're not very flattering. Oh, don't be so insular, Watson. Oh, I meant no offense, my friend. Well, you say the English criminal is dull. Well, perhaps if you were to read a published story of mine called A, a Study in Scarlet, you'd think differently. It tells of a very exciting adventure that Holmes and I had. I have read it, my friend. Oh, you have? An extremely gripping story, oh, but yes. surely you will admit that the crime was essentially of American origin. <laughs> He's right, Watson. <laughs> He's perfectly right, dear me. What can I do to vindicate the dishonor of the London criminal? Let me see. Oh, yes, yes, of course. A copy of today's Times. That's fine. I shall introduce you to a section known as the Agony Column. Uh, where is it now? Oh, yes, here we are. This should convince you of the color and variety of English life. The agony column? Mm -hmm. It sounds most painful. Uh, what is it, Frank? A personal column is liable to contain anything from a lover's frantic appeal to his lady love to a ransom note. In my profession, I've frequently found it an invaluable medium for contacting the underworld. Uh-huh. Yes, now, here we are. Here's something. Uh, dear me. Oh, dear, no. Today's column seems rather uninspired, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, may I examine it? Of course, here you are. Merci. Um, if the lady who helped my little boy across the road at the corner of Threadwell Street and High Auburn last Wednesday at four uh, will get in touch with box 845, she will learn of something to her advantage. <laughs> we can be more colorful than that in Paris, my friend. Yes, I think we can do better than that, too. Yeah, look at this, will you? Oh, printer must have been half asleep when he mm. set up the type for this advertisement. Will any gentleman interested in discussing... Cryptography and cipher writing. Please communicate with Box XQL six nine six. The time. Boy, I fail to find this message any more stirring than the preceding one. You notice the execrable printing, don't you? Indeed, I do. 
It is all mixed up. Uh, the first word, will, uh, starts with a capital W and a capital I. Uh, the second word, any, starts with a small a, and then has a capital N and Y. It is a shocking example of typography. And when it occurs in a paper noted for its excellence in typesetting, one realizes that uh, this is no mistake. What do you mean, huh? This is undoubtedly a code message. Oh, 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 come now, my friend. I defy even you to make a mystery out of a printer's negligence. I accept the challenge, my dear Leviard. If you recall, the Baconian bilateral cipher depends upon the use of two sizes of type. If we group the letters in units of five, the arrangements of small and capital letters within the group should give us the message. Now, let's see. Two capitals followed by three small gives us the letter H. Then two capitals, one small, two more. Ca that gives us E. H. I still think you're trying to make an adventure out of a mere printing accident. Oh, no mere printing accident could so readily fall into one of the great traditional ciphers. Now, let's see. This message reads H. E. L. Help. Uh... Uh, Q, too small. Uh, Q, I, uh, quilter. Help, quilter. Um, L, L, too small and large. Uh, elms. Help, quilter. Elms, pe there it is, yes. Pench. Help, quilter. Elms, pench. Help, quilter. Elms, pench. What does that mean? Presumably that a man named Quilter, who lives at a house called the Elms, in the village of Penge, needs help. Ah, I see it now. A helpless victim held prisoner. He smuggles out this message as a, as a harmless personnel, uh, with strict instructions that it be printed on this art form. He knows that the amateurs of cryptography to whom it is addressed will decipher this call for help. Et voilà. Monsieur Via, you seem ready to grant that adventure can exist in London, after all. <laughs> the advantage, my dear Watson, of a more mercurial temperament than we Englishmen possess. Well, the Beyond, what about it? Mm. Shall we set off for Penge and rescue the ingenious Mr. Quilter from whatever dire fate awaits him in the Elms? I'm all in patience. Mm. Splendid. Watson, I suppose you're too busy to join us. Uh, too busy? Well, I mean, your practice, I'm sure that you have patience. Oh, yes, 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 of course, yes. As a matter of fact, I have two further visits to make today. One to a peppery old miser who has gout, and the other to a wealthy society woman who has a cute attack of hypochondria, hypochondria, they call it. The two places with them to help both provide. I'm coming with you, Holmes, if you want me. Bravo, Watson, and grab your hat and coat. The game's afoot. Nice afternoon for a drive, wasn't it? Afraid it'll cost you 15 bob, though. There's a sovereign for you. You can keep the change. Oh, me, thank you, Governor. Top of the evening to you, gents. Oh, so, uh, this is the Elms, eh? Quite a bit of land for such a modest neighborhood. Uh, to call it the Elms seems remarkably inappropriate. I, I cannot see an Elm tree in sight. So you see, Livia, the English have more imagination than you give them credit for. Are you just going to walk up to the front door and knock, Holmes? Why not? The direct approach is often the most satisfactory. Oh, you disappoint me. I had hoped that perhaps you would adopt one of the disguises in which you are so adept, I am told. Well, since it's unlikely that these people know me by sight, that's hardly necessary, is it? However, I trust that this little problem may reward you with some colorful highlights before we throw... Oh. It's Scott. Vulva shots. 
They came from the house. Ah, we are too late. Monsieur Quilter has been murdered. No, I think not. You will observe that the next-door neighbor to the Elms was mowing his front lawn as we drove up. He is still engaged in the same occupation. Obviously, revolver shots attract little attention this vicinity. Mon Dieu, you mean that violence and sudden death are so common that they do not attract even the passing <laughs> interest? <laughs> no, we are. <laughs> even the British are not as phlegmatic as that. Then what is the answer to those shots, Holmes? Some member of this household is addicted to pistol practice. The fact that a shooting target is nailed to the back of that fence over there would further support the theory. Well, that's rather ominous, in my opinion. Well, give me out the front door. Let's keep our wits about us, anyway. Are you carrying a revolver, Dr. Watson? No, and a stethoscope, I'm afraid. I was prepared for sickness when I left the house today, and not for crime. Mm, I, too, am unarmed. How about you, Monsieur Holmes? Only a mag- magnifying glass, I'm afraid. Hardly a very lethal weapon. Yes? My friends and I were calling on Mr. Coulter. Oh? Who are you? My name is Sherlock Holmes, and these are my friends. Dr. Watson and Monsieur Le Villard. How do you do, do, madam? How do you do? Is Mr. Quilter expecting? I don't know. We uh, read his advertisement in the agony column of the Times today and came down here at once. Are you uh, a relation of his? I'm his niece. Oh. My name is Doris Favisham. Come in, won't you? Uh, Miss Favisham, I suppose it is. Yes, doctor. It's Miss Favisham. Uh, We uh, heard three revolver shots as we were walking up the driveway. They... It gave us quite a start. Yes, mademoiselle. We were afraid that we might have arrived at a time of tragedy. Yes, indeed. Tragedy? Oh. <laughs> My hobby is revolver shooting. I was doing some target practice in the back garden as you arrived. Revolver shooting, Miss Savage. Oh, very interesting. I flatter myself that I'm something of a marksman myself. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we can have a match. Won't you sit down? Your challenge intrigues me, Miss Savage, but uh, before I accept it, I should like to see Mr. Coulter. Well, Uncle George is paralyzed, you know. Oh, well. Spends all his time in a wheelchair. I'm not at all sure he'll see you. Well, at least you can ask him, can't you, Miss Favisham? It is his custom at this time of the day to take a little nap. Uh, perhaps tomorrow... Doris! Doris! Uh, he's still awake. Who's in Yes, Uncle? Here? Some men have come to see you, Uncle. Well, bring him in, bring him in. Follow me, gentlemen. Uncle? This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, and Monsieur... Uh, Monsieur... Le And Monsieur Le Villard. Uh, how do you do, sir? How do you do, sir? Uh, do you do? Sherlock Holmes, eh? It took you long enough to decipher my message and get here, didn't it? Your brother's a much faster worker, isn't he? Oh, what makes you say that, Mr. Quilter? Receive this telegram from him at 11 o'clock this morning. Read it for yourself. Oh. <laughs> well, what you say, Holmes? Suggest you consult my brother Sherlock, and it's... Signed, Mycroft Holmes. Yes, Mr. Quilton. My brother is a much faster worker. Or shall we say that he suffers from the unfortunate habit of early rising? He undoubtedly read the agony column three hours before I did today. Don't know about that. But I've been expecting you all day. I imagine you know why I inserted that advertisement. Well, I had the impression that uh, you were under some form of restraint. That uh, you were in need of a rescue party, as it were. Rubbish. Hmm? My advertisement was a piece of subtle bait. The only person that could decipher the message would obviously be someone who knew the Baconian cipher. Very logical deduction, Mr. Quilter. You see, I'm convinced, as any sensible man should be, that the so-called Shakespearean plays were written by Sir Francis Bacon. Oh, I see. But I felt that it needed a clever man to prove the fact. Mm -hmm. I was sure that anyone who was able to decipher my message was the man I needed. And what did it take, Mr. Holmes, to do the job? I'm a rich man. Name your fee. You mean to say that you inveigled Mr. Holmes down here just to do some research? 
on the origin of Shakespeare's work? Oh, you needn't look so shocked, Dr. Watson. My uncle has offered to pay him a handsome fee. Well, what do you say, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? An interesting subject for research. I'll concede that Ignatius Donnelly and others have proved almost beyond doubt that William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon did not write the plays, but I greatly doubt that Lord Bacon did. I may devote my leisure and later years to some investigation on the subject, but in the meanwhile, Mr. Grotter, I'm afraid I'm much too busy to want to take such an assignment. Oh, please yourself. Show the gentleman out, Doris. Goodbye, sir. Oh, good day, sir. Too bad you had this long drive down here for nothing, gentlemen. Yes, I'm afraid I quite agree on it. It would seem to me that your uncle has a distinct talent for practical joking, mademoiselle. Uncle? Oh, uncle never made a joke in his life. Mr. Holmes, now that you're here, perhaps you'd like to indulge in a little shooting match. Thank you, Miss Faversham, but um, as I told your uncle, I'm a busy man. Good evening to you. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. Goodbye. Holmes, old fellow, you're, you're losing your touch. You'd never made a blunder like this if I'd still been with you. <laughs> it is comforting for an aspiring detective like myself to know that the great Sherlock Holmes is fallible. Yes, <laughs> then am I to assume that I must continue the case alone? What do you mean, continue the case? There isn't, uh, there isn't one. Because there's in no danger. He's in desperate danger. What? I'm only afraid I may be too late to save him. But we have just spoken to the man. Oh, no. Did neither of you notice the traces of fresh loam on the boots of that supposedly paralyzed man? Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. <laughs> Doctor, why did you have to break off your story there? Well, I had to break it off somewhere, Mr. Bartell, and that seemed to be the most exciting spot. <laughs> it certainly was. I was convinced that the great Sherlock Holmes had been fooled for once. What happened next? Well, I need this to remark we did not get into a cab and go back to London, but let me pick up the story at the same place that I broke it off. As Holmes said... Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. Murder? There was fresh earth on the soles of his boots, you say? Distinct traces. Proving that the man in the wheelchair was not paralyzed. And that man, whoever he is, was impersonating Quilter to put us off the track. And the real Quilter may have been killed, eh? I'm afraid so. Let's stop here for a moment, shall we, while we make our plans. This hedge will hide us from the house in case they're watching from the windows. Now, this isn't a hard picture to reconstruct. There undoubtedly is or was a paralyzed Baconian scholar named Quilter. He managed to smuggle out that ingenious plea for help, but Mycroft's unfortunate telegram gave the game away. Mm-hmm. I see it now. The people in there holding him prisoner forced him to reveal what he has done, eh? What they may have done to him, heaven alone knows. One of the criminals, guessing from the telegram that I might appear on the case, posed as the crippled Quilter. What's our next move, huh? Remember that singularly unattractive young lady skilled with a revolver? We must search the grounds as unobtrusively as we can. Search the grounds? For what? Uh, I can answer that question, Monsieur Doctor. We search for signs of the freshly turned earth of a grave. <laughs> find any traces of the poor devil's corpse, thank heaven. No. A great disappointment. Cheer me, you're very bloodthirsty to the yard. Hello. Look at the old fellow trimming the hedge over there. Must be the gardener. Let's have a chat with him, shall we? May be able to give us some information. Good evening to you. Good evening to you, gentlemen. Good evening. 
You work for Mr. Quilter? That I do, sir. That I do. Yeah, very fine work, too. I've seldom seen a better kept garden. Why, thank you, sir. I do pride myself in my work. I wonder if you can help me. Be glad to if I can, sir. Uh, did you see a telegraph boy deliver a message here this morning? That I did, sir. The boy came here about ten o'clock this morning. I was a clip in the front edge at the time. And uh, you've been working here ever since? Yes, sir. Brought my lunch with me today and ate it in the garden. Has anyone entered or left the house since that telegram was delivered? No, sir. No one except yourself. I see, I see. I suppose you occasionally run errands for Mr. Quilter? Not much these days, sir. The poor old gentleman keeps his chair in the house pretty much all the time, sir. I did run a message for him yesterday, oh, though. Oh, you did? Where to? Well, sir... I was pruning the rose bushes under his study windows when the window opens and his hand comes out with a message. He told me to take it to the village office of the Times and to tell him to print it just the way it was. He looked kind of worried when he gave me the message and he he whispered to me just as if he was afraid in his own house. I'm much obliged to you. Here's five shillings for your trouble. Oh, thank you, sir. Much obliged to you, I'm sure. Good evening. Good evening to you, gentlemen. So that's how the message was smuggled out. Mm, and no one has come to the house or left it since that telegram was delivered. Therefore, Kulter or his body must still be inside that house. We are going to search the house? Yes, we are. But we're not armed, and they certainly are. They probably won't even let us in. Yes, they will. We have a, an infallible key to entry, a woman's vanity. Come on. <laughs> So you came back. I thought you wouldn't be able to resist my challenge to a pistol match, Mr. Holmes. Exactly, Miss Favisham. We had difficulty in finding a cab and decided to take a train back to London. It was an hour's wait, so I... Well, I thought I'd accept your challenge. Good. Come in. We'll go into the back garden. Thank you. Don't talk loudly. I think Uncle's asleep in the next room. Don't bring anybody in here, Doris. I want to see. All right, Uncle. This way, gentlemen. If your uncle wants to sleep, seems a funny sort of alibi. (laughs) Oh, well, he's used to that, Doctor. Here we are. This is the 50-yard range, Mr. Mm -hmm. Holmes. Three shots. Best aggregate score wins. How much do you want to bet? Uh, You name the stakes. Name the stakes, Miss Favisham. A sovereign? Certainly. You, uh... Take the first three shots. Very well. And just check that it's loaded. Yes, six bullets. All right, here I go. Bravo, Miss Faversham. Splendid. Bullseye and two inners. I can do better. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. Doris, who are these men? Friends of mine. I'll introduce you in a minute, Jeffrey. We're in the middle of a match at the moment. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. The Volvo, please. Here you are. Thank you. You, uh, you're sure you know how to handle a revolver? Oh, quite sure, thanks. Then why are you pointing it at me? Because I want you to raise your hands above your head. You too, whatever your name is. Doris, who are these men? Put up your hands. I shan't hesitate to shoot, I assure you. Come on. That's it. What in heaven's name do you think you're up to? Finding out what became of the real Mr. Quilter. Search the man, Watson. Right, you are, Holmes. Be off. Go to the house, will you, and search it. Uh, Yes, but of course. Hello, this man had a revolver on his hip. Keep him covered with it. He'll stand still, you. Now, sir, who are you? From your resemblance to the man in the wheelchair that we saw earlier, I should say that you're a member of the same family. We're both relatives of Mr. Quilter. That's right. My name's Davis. 
One from the Australian branch of the family. Relatives, yes. And doubtless you stood to inherit his estate in the event of Quilter's death. You moved in on this defenseless old man, terrorized him, lived off him, and finally found it necessary to destroy him. You're talking absolute rubbish. You're telling the truth and you know it. I can tell by your expressions. Move back into the house, both of you. Come on. And keep your hands raised. All right, that's it. Come on. Lead the way into the study. The man posing as Mr. Coulter is still there. We heard him call out as we came in. Yes, we might as well confront the three of them together. Yes, he's still seated in the chair. He seems to be asleep. Leah! Did you find anything? Another trace of the missing men, Monsieur Holmes. Davis, what did you do with Mr. Coulter? I didn't do anything with him. Of course not. He's sitting there in that chair. Well, it's no good lying to us. We know that that man's an imposter. This is a fantastic situation. Nobody has left this house since the telegram arrived, and nobody has come to it, and yet Mr. Coulter has vanished. Good Lord, how can he sleep through all this talk? You'd think he'd been drugged. The figure! We are idiots! You are unquestionably the most promising detective in France, and some people have been kind enough to grant me a similar status in England, and yet my old friend Watson has just solved the case. Well, well nothing. Just too happy to... What? Solved it? Well, how? Listen to the breathing of that man in the chair. What? He's been drugged. There sits the real Mr. Quilter, the persecuted victim who sent a cipher message for help. The man we spoke to earlier. Was you, Mr. Davies, impersonating Quilter. After you'd received us, you took off your disguise, adopted an Australian accent, and then hid your drug victim by placing him in his own wheelchair, knowing that would be the last place we'd look for him. Mm, and they would have kept him here until we had gone and then murdered him. What a devilish plot. Well, what have you got to say to yourselves? It was Jeffrey's idea, not mine. I didn't have anything to do with it. That's a dirty lie. You were in this as much as I am. Oh, this is splendid. Simply splendid. Please continue the argument. It'll... Make interesting evidence in court. You can't take us into court. Of course you can't. What's the charge? Quilter's still alive, isn't he? When Mr. Quilter revives under Dr. Watson's ministrations, you will be charged, I have no doubt, with attempted murder, abduction, sequestration, duress, and probably several other counts. Monsieur Villard, if you will find us a cab, we'll take these miscreants to Scotland Yard. Our work is done. <laughs> Doctor, that was a fine story. Every... What are you fidgeting for? Fidgeting? We, we, I'm expecting a guest. I thought I heard him just now. Now the, there's the front door. A guest? <laughs> now you're being as mysterious as Mr. Holmes. Oh, not quite. You see, I... Ah, come in. Dr. Watson, how are you, old rascal? <laughs> Gregory, my boy. It's great to see you again. Mr. Bartell, meet my friend, Mr. Gregory Hood. Not the Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, I like the way you say that. <laughs> yes, Mr. Bartell, this is the Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, if you listen to Dr. Watson, he'll lead you to believe I'm much more important than I am. I'm quite a simple person, really. I'm kind to dogs, just love little children, and always help old ladies cross the street. I also know how to make a fire by rubbing two sticks together. <laughs> yes, and unlike my old friend Holmes... You pretend to know very little about criminals and crime, and yet you're one of America's outstanding criminologists. So I've heard. A hobby, Mr. Bartell, a hobby. My real business is importing, headquarters San Francisco. Uh, need any old masters? Perhaps I can sell you a nice piece of jade, or uh, would you rather have a bit of old Balinese sculpture? <laughs> no, wait a minute. This is all a little too fast for me. <laughs> you learned that Gregory is a little too fast for everybody. Uh, but, Mr. Bartell, 
I'm sure you'll get to know Mr. Hood a good deal better. You see, as I've told you, I've always wanted to take a trip back to England, and now I have a chance to do so. But, Doctor, uh, won't I see you again? What about our story? Oh, I shall be back in the fall. But meanwhile, I've asked Mr. Gregory Hood to get together with you at this time every week and tell you some of his experiences. Which, of course, makes me feel very important. Mr. Hood, as you know, has been involved in many famous cases dealing in crime. His importing business and his hobby criminology are a strange combination. I learned that he keeps a diary of these cases, and it's a fascinating book. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. Sounds intriguing. Intriguing? Huh. It certainly is. Thank you. Well, then I can tell all our friends, be sure to listen next week at the same time and every Monday night through the summer to... The Casebook of Gregory Hood. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Sign of Four. Music is by Dean Foster. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer... Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Stay tuned for Phil Harris and Alice Faye next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, a comedy radio program which ran on NBC from 1948 to 1954, starring real-life couple Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Harris had previously become known to radio audiences as the bandleader-turned-cast member in the same network on the Jack Benny program, while Faye had been a frequent guest on programs such as Rudy Valley's variety shows. After becoming the breakout stars of the music and comedy variety program, The Fitch Bandwagon, the show was retooled into a full-situation comedy with Harris and Faye playing fictionalized versions of themselves as a working show business couple raising two daughters in a madcap home. Good health to all from Rexall. Yes, it's Sunday. Time for the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Presented by the makers of Rexall Drug Products and your Rexall Family Drugs. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Gail Gordon, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Scharf and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Today is an average day in the Harris household. Alice has finished the lunch dishes, the children are playing with a new toy, and Phil has just come down for breakfast. 
Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Phil. Hello, Daddy. Hey, where you kids got there? A chemistry set. It's a present from William. He bought it for them this morning. Willie bought something for somebody? <laughs> well, since I got him that job with Rexall last week, the boy's become a plunger. <laughs> How much did this set cost him? Ninety-eight cents. The plunger's got a short handle. <laughs> Ninety-eight cents, huh? That's a fine present for his rich sister's children. Now that he's working, <laughs> now that he's working at the drugstore, Uncle William says he's going to give me and Phyllis a lot of presents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. For Christmas, I can see him putting two small tubes of dental floss under the tree. <laughs> Alice, look, a chemistry set is dangerous. They can hurt themselves messing around with that. Oh, it's just a toy, and it's perfectly harmless. They can't get into any trouble with it. No, Daddy. This morning, we made ink with it. You made ink, huh? How was it? It was delicious. You drank it? Alice, do something. Call a doctor. Get a blotter. No, no, no. Don't... <laughs> don't get excited, Phil. They just tasted it, and I washed their mouths out. They know enough not to do it again. Believe me. Girls, you'd better go outside and play now. Okay, Mommy. Come on, Phyllis. Willie, Willie. When he's not doing something to me, he's doing something to my children. Getting him that job was the best thing I ever did. At least now he won't be bothering me during the day, and it'll certainly be a relief to hear him come in every morning with that... Good morning, Philip. <laughs> what did he do, have a record made? <laughs> what are you doing here during the day, Willie? I just came from a meeting with Mr. Scott. Scott? Hmm. Who's Mr. Scott? Well, he's a very important man with a Rexall company. He and the other executives were talking about you and your radio show, Philip. Ah. Hmm? Talked about me, huh? Kind of cut me up a little, huh? <laughs> what they have to say about me, Willie? Well... Come on, uh... tell me what they said. <laughs> Come on, what do they think of me? Well, you needn't worry, Philip. You have a contract and there's nothing they can do about it. <laughs> Knock off, will you, Levi? <laughs> Get lost. Go back to the drugstore and stuff cotton in their aspirin bottles. <laughs> nothing they can do about it. What do you mean, nothing they can do about it? They'd have to be crazy to try to get rid of me. I'm the greatest thing since rubber gloves. <laughs> can't understand it. I can't even get to meet this Mr. Scott. How come you got so close to him in only one week? Oh, I don't know. Guess he was captivated by my sparkling personality. Captivated? You got a personality that sparkles like a hangnail <laughs> There's got to be another reason Well, of course, he was very much impressed with the new bookkeeping system I installed It's really quite a system Oh, I'll bet it's just a gym dandy <laughs> You must explain it to me sometime Oh, I'll be glad to It's a double entry system Cease That's fine, just close it up right there <laughs> Hey, look, let me ask you something. Don't you have to get back to the office? Oh, my goodness, it's almost one o'clock. I'd better hurry. Now, don't worry, Philip. Next time I see Mr. Scott, I'll put in a good word for you. If I can think of one. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, Willie. If I can think of one. Some sharp talk. Kids really getting sharp. 
Ain't no stopping him since he won first prize for his tapioca pudding at the Pomona Fair. <laughs> you so annoyed with William? Because I hate apple polishers, that's why. Just trying to get on the good side of the boss. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't even trying to get me off of that show. Look, I'll get it. Must be Willie again. Probably forgot something. His beret. <laughs> I'm getting a little fed up with his coming around all the time, and I'm going to tell him so. Why don't you stop coming around here and bothering me? So? <laughs> You don't love me anymore. Oh, Frankie, I I'm just... glad I found out in time before I made a fool of myself. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean before you made a fool of yourself? Before I gave you the ring. Oh. <laughs> Cut out the clown and well, that's a fine way to greet Remley, me. Remley, I'm sorry and I want to apologize. I thought you were Willie. That's the most insulting apology. <laughs> What are you so sore willing about? Well, come on in and I'll tell you. All right. Let's go in the kitchen. You can have a bite to eat with me. Mm -hmm. Well, what's it all about, Curly? What's Willie done to you this time? Oh, I don't know. Ever since I got that job at Rexall for him last week, he's been doing everything in his power to impress them with his ability. Mm -hmm. Sit down. Yeah, all right. Mmm, cold chicken. Frankie, look. I got a serious problem. Willie's trying to undermine me with the company. He wants to get me off the show. You're passing mustard. <laughs> Look, Remley, this is important. Do you realize that if that happens, I'll be out of a job? Potato salad, please. <laughs> Frankie, will you pay attention? Okay. Now, look, I got to think uh, of... Pass me some of that stuff first. <laughs> oh, here. Look, Frankie... I gotta think of some way to stop this guy. <laughs> hey, this is wonderful wine. Good vintage. Nice body, very dry. What do you call this stuff? Ink. <laughs> yeah, ink? Yeah, ink. It's excellent vintage, though. Waterman's 1926. <laughs> Serves you right. The kids made that stuff with a chemistry set that Uncle Willie gave them. Uh -huh. Look, Frankie, I've been trying to tell you. Willie invented a new book system or a keeping system for the company, mm -hmm. and now he's the fair-haired boy with a Mr. Scott, the big man there. I ain't even met the guy. Mm -hmm. Remley, i got to do something to uh, impress the executives. Why don't you invent something? Like what? Well, what's the most important thing that Rexall makes and sells? What are they famous for? Drugs. That's it. All you got to do is invent a new drug. <laughs> That's all, huh? Yep, simple as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's only one trouble. I'm a little out of practice, you see. I haven't invented a drug for a fortnight now. <laughs> About nine days. <laughs> Look. What makes you think they need a new drug? Statistics. He ain't even with the company. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Look, how many independent druggists do they got? 10,000. How many drug products do they make? 2,000. All right, you see? That leaves 8,000 druggists without a drug. 
You must admit that makes sense. That figures. <laughs> hey, Remley. What? Whatever gave you the idea of inventing a new drug? Oh, the kid's chemistry set and my knowledge of chemical formulae. <laughs> formulae? That's yeah, Latin. It's female for formula. <laughs> Hey, hmm? you sound like you know what you're talking about. Well, of course I do. Come on, let's experiment. A lot of things are discovered by chemists just accidentally mixing things together. With my knowledge, we're sure to hit something. Yeah. A lot of things are discovered accidentally. Sure. Anyway, it's worth a try. Hey, come on, Frankie. Now, look. Let's get the kids' chemistry set, mix a few things together, and we'll see what happens. Curly, Maybe we Curly, can... please. We chemists cannot work with a child's implement. <laughs> we'll need a professional set with test tubes and Bunsen burners. You'll have to buy an elaborate set. Okay, Frankie, but you better come with me so I don't get stuck. All right. Hey, I hope this thing works how I'd love to show that Willie up. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> well, like the general said, let's get moving. The general? Yeah. The general said, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. But his noble steed said, no indeed, go get yourself a jeep. And the general said, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. But his man of war just said, what for? And went right back to sleep. Then the general called the captain, told the captain to tell the sergeant, tell the privates that he personally would lead the charge. Now he made a loud and fervent speech, he made a strong appeal. And he said, good friends, just follow me, I'll lead you through the then the general said, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. But his noble horse said, man, get lost and walk right off the field. Then the general said, giddy up, giddy up, come on, giddy up. But his stallion booed him where he stood and called that gent a heel. And that there horse come walking by, his noble head held high. And he walked up to the general, looked him smack dab in the eye. And he said, my friend, let's get it straight, let's get it straight right now. If you think I'm going to lead a charge, you crazy as a cow. The battle raged and raged and raged. The shells fell all around. But the general stopped and did no bobbing. He just stood his ground. The soldiers fought and fought and fought. The battle was no cinch. But the general and his faithful horse, they didn't move an inch. Then the bugler blew his bugle. His comrades left the fray. The mighty war was over, so they proudly marched away. But the general on his noble nag, his face with streaming tears Said I'll make that old hay burner move If it takes a million years Oh, the general said Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up They left him so I'll never know If he ever made that darn that go With his giddy up, giddy up Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up Oh, come on, horse At least take me back to the officer's club The general and his horse Family. What? How much further is this chemist supply store? Oh, it's in this block, a couple of doors down. See, now, I want to make sure we get everything. We'll need uh, a couple of dozen test tubes, some mixing pans, Munson burners. Uh, hmm? what are them burners for? <laughs> oh, they're necessary to every chemist. Yeah? 
Can't burn a Bunsen without him. <laughs> Besides, if we want to discover a new drug, we'll need them to heat up the ingredients. What are we after, a hot headache pill? <laughs> How stupid can a man be? Curly, <laughs> when we get in the store, you better let me do the talking. If we don't sound like professionals, they won't sell us anything. All right, all right, pro, you can do the talking. You better start it, too. Here comes the clerk. How do you do, sir? What can I do for you? Oh, uh, uh, nothing for me, but my colleague, Madame Curie, wants to buy <laughs> Madam Curie? <laughs> uh, pay no attention to Professor Harris. He's been working on the atom bomb and he's a little radioactive. <laughs> uh, we'd like to buy the best chemistry set you have. Oh, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, your professional chemists, of course. Please. <laughs> H2OCO2 and carbon 4 dioxide 5. <laughs> And if that ain't enough, granite 3883. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, will you please show us your most expensive set? Well, uh, very well, if you insist. I have one on the shelf right here. Mm. This is the best chemistry set that money can buy. Yeah, this looks adequate. We'll take it. Wait, pro, wait. <laughs> uh, how much is it, mister? Oh, not very much. The cabinet is $20. I ain't bad. Plus the chemicals, which are $165. Huh? Plus the smear slides, plus the culture discs. That'll be a total of $210. $210? Plus 3% sales tax. <laughs> hey, bud. Um, do you have a brother working in a packing house who cut up a steer for me three weeks ago? That was me, Professor Harris. I change jobs. I do that quite often. Well, don't ever take a job in a penny arcade. You won't be happy with their prices. <laughs> hey, Curly, stop quibbling about price. This is important to all you. All right, all right. All right, wrap it up, mister. We won't take it home. Get started. Very well. Oh, a word of warning. If you don't know what you're doing, these sets can be dangerous. No, please. Don't worry about us, bub. By the way, we'll also need some test tubes and mixing pans. Oh, look, and another thing. Throw in a couple of them bunion burners. <laughs> hey, Curly, look at all these chemicals and acids we have. Now, with what we have here, we shouldn't have any trouble inventing something great. Let's get started. Yeah, but... Hey, Remley. Hmm? You think we should be doing this here on the dining room table? This is an expensive piece of furniture. We might damage it. No, not with me handling the stuff. However, if it'll make you feel better, we'll cover it up. Put that tablecloth on. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'll just throw it on here. Hmm? Yeah, there. Ain't no sense taking no chances. No. All right, now then, let's get started. Uh, first, I'll pour a little of this into a test tube. Uh, what is it? Uh, hydrochloric acid. <laughs> Harmless stuff. <laughs> I'll just pour a little in this test tube. Frankie, be careful. 
Look, you're splashing it all over the tablecloth. Well, that's all right. We got a lot of it. <laughs> Stop worrying. It won't hurt the cloth. Okay, as long as it... <laughs> Remley, are you losing compression? <laughs> It's burning holes in the tablecloth. That's very weak material. Oh. I'm surprised that Alice buying sheets. Hello, You're boys. Get... Hello. What are you doing in here? What's that stuff on the table? Oh, no. Look at my pure Irish linen tablecloth. Beautiful, intricate lace work, hasn't it? <laughs> Phil Harris, what have you done? What are all these bottles on the table? Honey, it's just a little chemistry set. Well, take it out to the garage and play with it. And if you play real nice, I'll get you boys tinker toys for Christmas. Now, go on. Run along. All right. All right. Let's go out in the garage, Pro. Come on. A new drug. I wonder when he'll get the mud pies. I never know what he's going to do. There's only one thing I'm sure of. A little bird told me that you love me. That you love me. And I believe that you do. That you do. This little bird told me I was falling. Really falling. Falling for no one but you. None but you. There's no use tonight. I might as well confess. Of all the boys I know, dear, I'm sure I love you best. A little bird told me that you love me. That you love me. And I believe that it's true. A little bird told me we'd be married. And I believe that it's true. This little bird also told me when we marry. We'll have a pretty cottage not too far. All fenced in like a movie star. Great Dane Pop, we'll call him Ace. Lying there by the fireplace. A goldfish pond and a wishing well. Everything is gonna turn out swell. A little bird told her she'd be married. Dear, 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 dear. dear. And we believe that is true. This little bird also told her when she married. We'll be the proudest couple in the land. Go through life hand in hand. Have a rancho way out west. Pick a spot that we love the best. A peachy keen and all is well. That's true, we know. A little birdie told us so. Love that little boy. Hey, Frankie, how are we doing? You think we got something here? Shh, shh, don't disturb me. I gotta concentrate. It's coming to a boil. <laughs> hey, look, it's changing color. It was pink and purple, and now it's changing to orange and blue. Well, then we got it, Frankie. Can't you see? It's the perfect drug for Rexall. A pill that's that's half orange and half blue. <laughs> I still like pink and purple. <laughs> now, Curly, I think we got something here, though. 
As soon as it cools off, I'm going to pour it and let you have the honor and privilege of being the first one to taste our new drug. <laughs> Let's reverse that. I'll pour you taste. Oh, but Curly, I'm a scientist. The world needs men like me, but you're expendable. <laughs> Are you going to be selfish? You're going to think of the world or yourself? Yes. Yes, what? I think the world or myself. <laughs> Look, Ramley, let's face it. We're both afraid to taste this stuff. Yeah. Well, what we need is a human guinea pig to try it out on. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need, a guinea pig. Somebody hey, who... what are you two guys doing in the garage? Well, if it ain't Julius, oink, oink, a bruzio. <laughs> Julius, my boy, I'm going to give you a chance to become famous. I'm going to let you do something that will make this world a better place to live in. You and you alone, Julius, can make your fellow man very happy. Sorry, I ain't interested. <laughs> Why not? I ain't going to knock Mr. Harris off. <laughs> Nobody's asking you to knock me off. All we want you to do is to help us with a little experiment. Experiment? Now, look, kid. Mr. Remley... <clears throat> My colleague yes. and myself <laughs> have just discovered a new drug that will be a boon to mankind. You discovered a new drug? Yes, sir, and we want you to be the first to try it. Just think, Julius. If it's successful, your name will go down as one of the bravest men in medical history. You'll be a martyr, a man of destiny. Yeah, I'll be a world-famous martyr. People will talk about me and I'll be a household word. Gentlemen, I've reached a decision. Then you'll do it? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Julius, I made this stuff. What are you afraid of? What could happen to you? I could drop dead. <laughs> Besides that, I guarantee nothing will happen. To you. But if it does, we'll give you our antidote. Did you discover an antidote too? No, but we'll face that crisis when it arrives. <laughs> Look, Julius, I'm trying to discover a new drug for my sponsor. If I can show a big shot like Mr. Scott that I have his interest at heart, he'll accept me. We'll travel around together socially. Save your breath. <laughs> I should give my life just so you can go steady with Mr. Scott? <laughs> Julius, look, I poured a little in this test tube. Here, just taste it. Stop shoving it into my head. I... Julius, you're dropping it. I don't think this stuff's going to be any good for headaches. Boom, it was. Well, boom. Yeah. Curly, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. How about you? Yeah, I'm all in one piece. <laughs> Curly. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't Julia standing here a minute ago?
I could have sworn he was. <laughs> hey, Frankie. Hmm? You think that maybe could be. <laughs> oh, well, here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't even wait till tomorrow. <laughs> Little Julius. Too bad it had to happen. What are you, a couple of wise guys or something? Hey, Julius, you all right? Where were you? I ducked down here under the car. So that's the drug you discovered for Rexall, huh? What are they going to do, open a bomb department? All right, we're sorry, kid. It was an accident. I guess I put too much uranium in. I'm getting out of here. The thing you guys wanted me to drink that but stuff. But, Julius, we didn't... I tell my old man you tried to make an active volcano out of me. <laughs> there goes the guinea pig, Mr. Remley. This is a nice medical discovery you made. What's it supposed to do, blow up the germs? Oh, Philip! Oh, no, look, there comes Willie. There he comes, and he's got some guy with him. If he sees what we did, I'll be a laughingstock. He'll tell everybody. i got to keep him out of the garage, Frank... Hey, Frankie. What? I think I found a use for our drug. <laughs> you mean... Yeah, now start pouring. Keep pouring just enough to scare him off. Are you ready? Yeah. Drop it as soon as they get near the garage door. Oh, Philip, Alice told me you were... <laughs> I wonder what Alice told him you were. <laughs> Look at Willie. Look at Willie and his friend around. We scared the daylights out of him. Phil, Frankie, what happened? What was that explosion? It was nothing, honey. We just played a little gag to scare Willie and his friend away. Just a harmless prank. Phil, Phil, you shouldn't have done that. Especially to Willie's friend. (laughs) Oh, who's worried about Willie's friend? When will I ever see that guy again? Around auction time. That was Mr. Scott. What? Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Sam Spade, followed by Life with Luigi. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.